1: Hello everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler host. Today we'll be talking with Jill L. Newmark, the author of Engaging the Civil War Without Concealment, Without Compromise, The Courageous Lives of Black Civil War Surgeons. How are you doing today?
2: I'm fine, thank you, and thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Thank you. i
1: I wonder if you could start by saying a few words about yourself and how you got interested in this project
2: well i um I am a retired a retiree um, I worked for the National Library of Medicine in the history of medicine division um, in the exhibition program there um, for seventeen years before I retired and my My career has really been centered on museum exhibitions uh, and collections management, and when I was at the National Library of Medicine, um, I became interested in uh, my my predecessor, and I co-curated an exhibition on contemporary African-American academic surgeons, and we focused on academic surgeons that were doing pioneering things. And part of that process, we said, you know, we really should talk a little bit about history and the pioneers before these contemporary pioneers. So we included not only individuals, but institutions like Howard University or Meharry uh, Medical School. And during that process, I came across Alexander T. Augusta, who was the first African-American um Professor in the medical department when it started he was only the, he was only one um, out of five professors and the only african american and from that, I learned that he had been a surgeon in the civil War and I started to wonder how many other black surgeons and physicians had become surgeons in the civil war and that 's kind of how it started and i started uh Looking into it, it was intriguing to me, and I would find the little pieces here and there. And then I developed an exhibition called Binding Wounds, Pushing Boundaries, African Americans in Civil War Medicine that dealt, dealt with the physicians surgeons as well as the nurses. So that's kind of how I fell into this, uh, this, this area of history.
1: Now, some of the men began their careers as surgeon barbers and apprenticeship was really common. Tell us more about that. Well, medical education at the time
2: in the 19th century wasn't what it is today to a large extent. It really uh, started, generally people did an apprenticeship, and they could just do an apprenticeship for five, six years, and then they were considered um, qualified to be doctors. Others went on to medical school. Most of um, most often, they did apprenticeships and then went to medical school. So, um, so that was kind of the process. And being a surgeon barber, like Alexander T. Augusta was a barber before he became a physician. Um, being a barber for a black man was considered a fairly decent job, and it it gave a decent amount of income. So, I think there was a there's a, a whole. Uh, um, history about um, barbering and and African-Americans in surgeon barbers and barbers. So I think that's kind of how it started. Um, You know, surgeon barbers at the time, they weren't just cutting hair, obviously. They were doing leeching and cupping and pulling teeth and things like that. So sometimes that was a stepping stone to becoming a physician.
1: I noticed that in um, admission to medical school, they always talked about good moral character. Tell yeah. us more.
2: Yeah, it's very interesting. In every um, in doing the research, when I would uh, I, I would look at the catalogs from the schools because oftentimes those catalogs listed students, and I was looking for those individuals that I was researching, and they had a long list of things that was required, and one of them was a good moral character. Um, I guess that that's fairly subjective, but um, uh, most of the time. When these men were applying for schools, they actually had to get, um, they not only had to have an apprenticeship, but they had to have letters of recommendation attesting to their, you know, their good moral character. Um, good moral character is a subjective term, so I don't feel like I'm qualified necessarily to define that, and I think it changes from time period to time period, but, um, I would imagine they had to be upstanding citizens with good reputations. Yes.
1: Sponsorship, another way in which many Blacks were admitted. Who usually were the sponsors?
2: Well, what's what's interesting is um, the the one sponsorship that I talk about is the American Colonization Society, which was formed to um, really to take black people that were in the United States and send them elsewhere. Um, They set up um, a kind of a town and established this in Liberia at that point. So what they did was they would sponsor young black men and pay for their medical education if they agreed to go to Liberia and be doctors there. Um, Yeah. You know, obviously, the American Colonization Society had an ulterior motive because they were trying to get blacks out of the country. And they thought that was best for them. But obviously, it would be, I mean, best for those black people that would be leaving. But um, it was their way of finding a sort of acceptable way of getting them out of the country. But um, um, one of the surgeons in the book, Willis Revels, who was also an AME preacher, did get his medical education paid for by the American Colonization Society, but then his wife did not want to go to Liberia, and he did not go, and he paid back the money that he was given
1: towards his education. Tell us about John Rep here, uh, Mm -hmm. how he had to change his racial identity to get in
2: yeah it's quite an interesting story john john Ripier junior was a very I, I he was really i call him a man of adventure and ambition um, <clears throat> he didn't live a long life but he packed that life in with so much and um, what's interesting is is, uh, is prior to the civil war in 1861 he and his uncle went to um, the the um, Car- the caribbean um mostly um, in Haiti and Jamaica and spent time there. And really what they were doing was um, trying to find a place where as a black person, they could have a decent life, um, be able to be prosperous and live in peace. And a lot of people, you know, were looking for that and, you know, they got on a boat, they went there and um, You'll have to read the book to learn about him being disillusioned with that process. But what's interesting is is that um, he first did an apprenticeship with a dentist, and then he decided that he wanted to become a medical doctor, and he did an apprenticeship in um, there, I think it was in Jamaica. It was that the apprenticeship for his, uh, with a physician, a Canadian physician. And he studied there and the Canadian physician finally said to him, you know, I think you have enough training that you'll be able to get into medical school in Canada. And so at the outbreak of the war, um, he was really, he was very ambitious but he, he was ambitious, I think, not just for himself, but to be able to provide for his family because he knew his family was struggling and it was the war and his family lived in Alabama and he knew that it was a problem. Um, uh, and, and so he really was looking for something that would be prestigious as well as give him enough income to support his family, his father, his stepmother, and, and his, step, uh, his stepbrothers and sisters. And so when he returned to the U.S., um, he went to Oberlin College and then he went to the University of Michigan the, uh, to, and went to the medical school there and started there. And when you look in the catalogs, it'll tell you, it'll list the student, the year they're there, and it lists their last residence, you know, like where are they from. And he put down that he was from Jamaica. Uh, and and in, it, it's very interesting because he was writing a letter to his cousin and he was talking about how there was this other um, black man that came into medical school and came to class, and all the st- white students were yelling at him, and he eventually was asked to leave. And that medical student was Alpheus Tucker. And Alpheus Tucker was from Detroit, so he listed his home as Detroit. And what's very interesting is is that um, it, 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 from from what I can tell, Alpheus Tucker was asked to leave, but John Rapier Jr. was not asked to leave. And the only conclusion I can come to is, is that he identified as a, uh, he identified himself as a man from Jamaica, which would make him still a man of color. He didn't deny he was a man of color, but he was a man of color from someplace else. So he was considered probably a foreigner. Um, and I think it made his life easier. He, he clearly understood... Um, having traveled to Haiti and Jamaica, that complexion made a big difference in how people were treated and what class uh, what their class was and um, so he was clearly aware of all of that. And um, the other the interesting thing is is that for you know medical school that's what he did. but when he applied to become a surgeon in the Civil War, he clearly indicated to to, to in his application letter that he was, southern-born man from Alabama, and that he was a quadroon, and that's how he identified himself. So it's very interesting how he used his experiences to benefit him in different ways.
1: Now, there were two other men, William Powell and John DeGrasse. Tell us about their connections.
2: <laughs> so William, William Powell... Um, what's interesting about William Powell Jr. and John Vansoli de Grasse is um, that they both received some of their medical education in Europe. Um, William Powell Jr. was from a family, his father was William Powell uh, as well, and he was a very well-known abolitionist, and he ran a uh, boarding house in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and then also in New York for black sailors that also served for the Underground Railroad, and so he was fairly well known. And um, but when the um, in 1850, when the Fugitive Slave Act was passed, he decided that he was going to move his family to England, and they went to Liverpool, and that's where. Um, William Powell Jr. got his education at the University of Liverpool. He moved there because, you know, he really wanted to, he said he he, he wanted to be out of the country, but he also wanted some um, some better opportunities for his children. And he he did that uh, for his children. They got different educations, but William Powell got an education as a doctor. Now, John Van de Grasse came from a fairly wealthy family in New York. His um his father, George, was the son of a French admiral who served with George Washington at the Battle of, um, I forget what it is, but um, and his father also worked for Aaron Burr, and that's how he began to get interested in land ownership. So his father was a, uh, owned property, which gave him a certain amount of wealth, um, and he went to Paris. Got an education, learned French, came back, went to Maine Medical College, and then he went back to France to study with a, a surgeon named Valpo, who was very well known, um, had a d- prolific writer. Um, everyone, I, th- I think everyone that went to Paris to study medicine studied under Valpo. So they had the opportunity to, to take and get some of their medical education, if not all of their med- medical education in Europe.
1: Now, tell us about the qualifications of the white surgeons who were assigned to the black regiments.
2: Well, you know, I think any any individual, whether they were black or white, had to pass a medical exam, a medical board by the Army Medical Examining Board. So they had to pass an examination. Um, but what's interesting is that. Um, I think that they were more willing to take the, uh, what I can, can this is my estimation. The US army was more willing to take less qualified white surgeons and assign them to uh the United States Colored Troop regiments rather than hire black surgeons and assign them to those regiments. The biggest issue in when serving was that only one of the 14 surgeons served in the field with their regiment because white surgeons would not serve alongside them, nor would they be subordinate to them. And so that created a problem. There was only one surgeon, which was John Vanceurly de Grasse, who served with his regiment. So, um, But I also believe that Without a formal med- medical education, all of these 14 men had a say, formal medical education. Without that, I don't even think they would have been considered. Now, with white surgeons, um, there are some instances where they would take, they, they, they had a shortage of surgeons, and then they would take a hospital steward who was kind of like a pharmacist and promote him to an assistant surgeon, even though they weren't totally qualified. Um, so there was a lot of that going on, I think.
1: Chapter Two: A Catalyst for Change. Tell us about Alexander Thomas Augusta and his uniform uh, in the First Presbyterian Church in D.C.
2: Yes, he attended a um, a celebration of the Emancipation in D.C., which took place a year before the Emancipation Proclamation. And when he um, when he showed up, he had just gotten his commission in April 1863. He was in a major's uniform. So you can imagine, here is a black man in a major's uniform with oak leaves on his shoulders, walking around the District of Columbia. Um, It was quite a sight to see. And um, it it really sparked controversy as well as pride. And um, I know I talk about the uniform in the book because The uniform was really a symbol of uh, patriotism and pride. And um, I don't know if I can find the quote, but um, I I really um, talk about that as a a symbol of patriotism. And um, let me see if I can... I think um, because the uniform represented a position and authority that black men had never had before. A black person in general never had before. And I think that, um, most people could tell that that uniform meant something and it represented something. And I, I, um, it's interesting because I do talk about it in the book and I, it, it, um, and I, I make reference to Deborah Willis's book, which um, I can't remember the title of it, but she talks about photographs of black soldiers. And one of the things she, she talks about, and I'm just going to read this from the book, is that she notes that photos of black soldiers frame them in patriotism and manhood, allowing us to imagine an, instance, an instant that the sense of bravery and pride that accompanied the very act of pinning and wearing the emblematic eagle and brass button her, under, her understanding of these portraits, she says, are there are connected to the concept of dem- democracy and citizenship, and touches upon the significance of their presence and participation in the war and their sense of patriotism. And for me, it was definitely a sign of patriotism to wear the uniform. I think it gave them a sense of pride. It also represented something to the people that were seeing them. If you if you don't see your if you can't see yourself in someone else, sometimes you can't really determine your potential. It helps you say, Hey, look at that. I can, I can do that. I can be that. And I think that Alexander walked around the streets of, of Washington uh, in his uniform and it really changed the dynamics for, um, for, uh, for people.
1: Tell us about the streetcar incident.
2: Yes. in, 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 I believe it was in 1864. Um, Alexander Augusta was in Baltimore and he was leaving to um, go somewhere to take care of some business. And he was on the, um, uh, uh, let me step back. That's a, that's a different, his incident in in the streetcar was he was in Washington DC and he was heading downtown to um, testify in a court martial case. And um, he stepped on the, on the, the uh, streetcar and he was going to take a seat and the conductor said no you you have to stand up front with the with the, you know the you, you have to stand up front with the conductor you know the guy driving the train the the streetcar and he said no i'm going to sit and um he said no you have to you have to go up front that's where black people go which was totally uncovered and he refused to do that he got thrown off the streetcar he it was raining he got totally soaked he had to write a letter to say why he was uh why he was detained. And after that incident, Charles Sumner, who was a senator from Massachusetts and an abolitionist, kind of was outraged and brought before the, the Congress a bill to desegregate streetcars. Um, and he considered, he said that it was, you know, it was worse than a, a loss in battle that here is an officer of the U.S. Army that gets thrown off a streetcar. And eventually, I think the following year, there was legislation that desegregated streetcars in D.C., as a result of that.
1: Now he had another incident on a train with a a white teenager.
2: Yes, that was in Baltimore. That's what I was starting with. Um, He was on a train headed to, to take care of business. I don't know if he was, he was probably going North from Baltimore and um, there was a white teenager that was taunting him. I think he had a stick, ripped his epaulets off. Um, Augusta demanded the, um, the, the, the protection from the provost guards that were there. He said, I am an officer of the US Army and you have to protect me. Um, you know, he was taken to the provost office. He had to prove who he was. Um, I think they eventually the people got arrested, but they went back um, and he made a couple of trips back and forth. Um, then he was going back. They were, the guards were with him. Someone punched him in the nose. He said he had a bloody, he got a bloody nose and he headed back to the, um, to the street, I mean, to the, to the, um, to the train. Um, but what, you know, he, he wrote a letter about the incident as well. And, um, he said that if he, is I mean they all of these men knew that when they were wearing the uniform it was going to be controversial. But Augustus said, if I am afraid to wear my uniform in public, I am an officer of the US Army and if I am afraid to wear my uniform in public, I shouldn't be wearing it at all. Like I shouldn't be in the US Army. He always took it from a more universal global position. I not that he, I'm, the, I, I'm a black man in a uniform. I am an officer of the U.S. Army, and I do respect.
1: Now, tell us about all the jobs he provided people.
2: When he was, um, his first assignment when he became a surgeon was the sur- uh, a surgeon in charge of Contraband Hospital in Washington, D.C., Contraband eventually became Freedman's Hospital, which became Howard University Hospital. But at that time, it was Contraband Hospital, and he was the first African American to become a uh, di- direct a hospital in the United States. And really, what he, he tried to, um, when he got there, he tried to improve the conditions. He tried to hire as many of the women that were um, residents there to work in the hospital as nurses. He found some jobs for them outside. So he was very... Um, you know, he not only tried to deal with their medical issues, but he really tried to provide as much assistance as he could. And that um, many of the people that applied, nurses that applied for pensions uh, do mention that in their depositions when they were trying to get pensions.
1: What was his finding about the environment and health
2: well, it was very interesting because the water, the, the source of water there was a well. And he said that um, he was trying to get the water source improved because he, he said the source of water, the water in the well was dried up and it wasn't a good source of water and it caused illnesses like dysentery, diarrhea, um, and those kinds of things. So he clearly saw a connection between the environmental conditions there and the health of the people that lived there. And he tried to attempt to get them to connect the main water source for the D.C. area and to bring that into the camp, but that never came to fruition. He also recognized that when he was in um, Savannah, Georgia, directing a Freedman's Hospital there, where he clearly understood that some of the environmental conditions there were affecting the, um, the people that were at the hospital and lived in the community.
1: Now, tell us about William Peter Powell, Jr. Um, A lot of these families migrated different places.
2: William P. Powell, Jr. was from uh, New Bedford, Massachusetts. And his family um, lived there. That's where he was born. And then they moved to New York and they moved to New York City. <clears throat> Excuse me, and there was a community of black elite that were doctors, lawyers, printers, teachers, educators um, that lived there. so there was a very wide community of edu- well educated people and they had their own pharmacies, they set up their own schools. So he did move there. Um, a lot of these a lot of these um, 14 men came from what would be considered well to do families. They had the financial means to be able to move. And so they went from New Bedford to New York City. And as I mentioned earlier in 1850 with the um, fugitive slave law enacted, they moved to uh, Liverpool and eventually 10 years later came back. And um, um, William Peter Peter Powell became a surgeon and was assigned to Washington DC. His family was still living in New York Um, and they were affected by the draft riots and lost everything in the draft riots. Um so
1: another very important part of your book, you talk about the pensions. Did these men receive pensions? What happened, for example, to Peter Prowell?
2: Well, um some of them did apply for pensions and the, the, the pension system Changed over the years. It started out where it said you had to have an illness or an injury that was a direct result of your service, and then you know eventually it changed. And old age was a pensionable um, uh, uh, issue. You could get a pension if you were old and you'd serve. So what would happen is um, Powell tried for 24 years, 25 years to get a pension, um, applying, going through the medical examinations, um, showing the proof, getting depositions. And every time the law changed, he would reapply because the laws changed and he would try again. And he tried for, you know, 24 years and he was never able to get a pension. Um, the pension bureau, I believe had, um, were not equal in their treatment of, Black applicants, as they were with white applicants, I talk a little bit about that in the book, and talk about some of the statistics about how many, you know, that the the percentage of white applicants was greater that received pensions. Um, Powell never received a pension, and I don't know if any of I don't think any of the surgeons received a pension. Some of them did not apply for a pension, but sometimes their widows did. And there is one case, actually, I think it's uh, Charles Taylor. I think his wife applied for a pension and did get one. But I also believe that his wife was white.
1: Yes. Now, another really interesting factor was a lot of the people were mixed race. Yes. Um, John DeGrasse. His family was mixed race. Now, yes. Tell us more about how he had that connection in France. Then he moved to Maine, Paris, Boston. Yes. There was a lot of moving parts there.
2: Yes, he had a lot of moving parts. And the only reason he was able to do that is because his father was a wealthy landowner and had the means to be able to do that. So, um, you know, he went to France, got an education, learned French, came back, went to medical school, graduated, went back to France studied with Valpo, and then came back to Boston and set up a, a, um, a very successful practice before the war. He was the first African-American accepted into the Massachusetts Medical Society. And he just, um, you know, continued there. And then he applied, and he was actually the second and only the, one of only two that were commissioned medical officers. And they both were commissioned in April... Um, Alexander Augusta got his commission in the beginning of the month and John Vent Surly de Grasse got his at the end of the month. And then after that, all they um, would give to black physicians applying for surgeon positions were contract positions as acting assistant surgeons. And I think they did that because it made it easier for them to get, get rid of them if they needed to. Once they were in the army, it was more difficult. Um, and John Vincerelli de had a very difficult time because he served in the field and he was eventually court-martialed and cashiered out on what I, um, my estimation is that they were a kind of dubious charges. They just wanted to remove him.
1: Yes, one of the charges uh, was related to drinking and yes. then another charge saying that he was um, making bad remarks to a black woman.
2: Yes, and what's very interesting is when you read the all the court uh, all the transcripts from the court martial there, so you can read everything from the witnesses, and um, you know it's pretty clear that it's a little bit iffy on all those charges. And for example, um, at the Battle of alusty uh, that was one of the incidents where they said that he was intoxicated. But what's very interesting is that the commanding officer at the time. Lieutenant Colonel Reed was wounded at the Battle of the Lusty, and the surgeon attended to him, but they needed to get him to Jacksonville to get him on a boat to send him to Beaufort, South Carolina, to go to a hospital. And so uh, the surgeon had been attending to him, but then he assigned John Vance Early de Grasse to accompany the lieutenant colonel, who was the commanding officer at that time, to Jacksonville to get on a ship. It seems highly unlikely that the surgeon in charge would send an intoxicated surgeon to accompany the commanding officer who was wounded. Does't make sense to me
1: and the ending was pretty bad. he He died early,
2: yes, he died in eighteen sixty eight i can't, uh, He had gotten sick. It's the same thing with john um, John rapier jr who was working in Washington, D.C., and the work was very hard, and he died in 1866. So they both died fairly young. Yes.
1: Now, you talk about the Oberlin connection. A lot of Black students got their training there.
2: Yes. I think, um, you know, as undergraduates, a lot of them went to Oberlin, and I believe that um, they had a, a... a abolitionist leaning there. I think a lot of the schools that these men chose to go to, they would have they would have had to have abolitionist leanings to even accept them. And so um, <clears throat> it's very interesting because John Rapier Jr. and Alpheus Tucker <clears throat> seemed to follow each other in that educational journey because they both studied at Oberlin. Then they both went to the University of Michigan and started medical school there. Then, after Alpheus Tucker um, was asked to leave, he went to Keokuk Medical College in Iowa. John Rapier Jr. left Michigan and also went to Keokuk Medical College. He left because he would be able to go and graduate earlier. He didn't want to wait till the following year. He could graduate that year, so that's why he left. Um, so they kind of followed each other. I think you have, to, you have to look at it from this point of view that you have 14 black surgeons and black medical students, especially when they became surgeons in the Army. It was a very small group, so they all knew of each other. And some
1: had um, actually served with each other or went to school with each other. You talk about Richard Henry Green joining the Navy. But what about his racial identification when he joined?
2: Well, it's quite interesting. Um, Richard Henry Green really is the only black man to serve in the Navy during the Civil War as a surgeon. Um, But he grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. And when you look through all the census records, clearly they identify his family in the census from different years as black, Negro, mulatto. um, And what's... Interesting is he went to Yale University as an undergraduate. No, um, no clear determination that he was identified as a black man, although there were some references later on to the black graduates of Yale. Um, at the same time that he was an undergraduate, Cortland Van the Creed was the first black man to graduate from the medical school, and he graduated that same year. But with Green... Um, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, it's hard to tell how he identified himself. Um, it does not seem likely that he would have been admitted as a surgeon in the Navy on a naval ship treating a majority of white sailors if they did not think he was a white man. Um, there were no black surgeons that were appointed to um, hospitals where white patients were. Um, so what's interesting is, is there are references, like I say, that identify him as Negro, black colored mulatto prior to his, um, graduation from Dartmouth. Then he became a teacher. And then when he joined the military and went to the Navy, um, from that point on, I believe he was identified, whether he self-identified as this. I think he eventually self-identified, but he was identified as a white man. So when you look at census records after that, when he after the navy he lived in Hussik, New York, he married a white woman uh, while he was in the navy, and uh, from that point on, he was identified as a white man.
1: The A.M.E. minister Willis Reed Re- Revels, yes. yes, his brother was the first U.S. Black senator. Yes, Hiram Revels, yes. What did we learn about the combination of Native Americans and blacks through history?
2: Well, I I don't really touch upon it too much. Um there's a lot of mixed history about the relationship between Native Americans and and um and black people at the time. But Willis Revels and his brother um were claimed to be a mix of European, white, and Native American. Um, there's no reason not to believe them, but I know that their children tried to um, uh, prove that and they were they were not able to do that. But I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's very hard to determine your exact ancestry and parentage, but most, uh, I, I would say that, most every one of these 14 surgeons came from that background. Um, That's sort of a common thread. And they also came from backgrounds where they had a fair amount of money because you would not be able to move around and travel if you did not have money. And most of these men did that.
1: Now, he also was involved with recruitment in 1863.
2: Yes. He was a AME minister, as we know, and he began working uh, with recruitment with the 54th Massachusetts, working with the governor there. And then once they were able to recruit in Indianapolis and Indiana, he worked with the governor there and um, a a wealthy uh, white man who is a landowner and a lawyer. Um, And he was a recruiter. So he started recruiting um, for the United States Colored Troops there in Indianapolis. And once they started to establish it, he actually uh, served as the acting assistant surgeon while they were mustering in in Indianapolis, treating all of the soldiers there because it was very cold and many of them were sick. So most of it, obviously he was treating illnesses. Um, Once the, the regiment, I think it was the 38th USCT, once the regiment left, he was he, he did not go with them. So he had a very short period of time that he served, but he served first as a recruiter.
1: Now, he was involved in a train accident. Did that impact his life? It actually did. He, he had
2: some injuries from that that um, stayed with him throughout the rest of his life. It made it difficult for him to do his work um, because he was a, a traveling minister, so a lot of times he would leave and go to different towns in a certain regions and in, a, in a surrounding states like Kentucky um, and um, and Missouri. And so um, eventually, I think it caught up with him. And um, uh, but it, it did it did put a restraint on him. But I, I have to say that you know he persevered and he felt a commitment to uh, his ministry as well as to his medical practice. So it was quite a combination where he could, um, I, I think I talk about how he, he could uh, provide for both the spiritual and the medical needs of the soldiers and the, um, that he was treating when he was there in Indianapolis.
1: Benjamin Bozeman Jr. Now, yes. a lot of the themes, they were born free. He was yeah. born free. Tell yes. us about his postmaster career.
2: Yes. Um, actually all of these, all 14 of these men were born free. Um, they did not all have, some of their relatives were enslaved. Um, like John Rapier Jr. I'll go back to Bozeman, but John Rapier Jr. For instance, um, his, he lived with his grandmother and his grandmother was enslaved. Um, and, and, um, his, his parents were, were, his father was not born free, but got his freedom. And, um, But uh, Benjamin Bozeman, it's quite interesting because he was assigned to a recruiting rendezvous in South Carolina. That's where he served. And he stayed in in Charleston. And um, he was very ambitious and kind of delved into politics because he became a representative in the Southern uh, South Carolina legislature for a number of years. And then he became the first black postmaster of Charleston. So he had a pretty pretty um, successful life. You know, he owned some stock and some businesses. He started, was a founder of a black, first black owned, you know, railway company that was in the city. So, but he was the first black postmaster of
1: Charleston. And he died very early also. Yes, he did. Yes. Now, you know, tell us about the family affair, Charles Purvis. Um, yes, the social justice and the Quakers,
2: yes, it's very interesting because um Charles Purvis came from a very abolitionist family. His father was um uh, Robert Purvis, and his mother was Harriet Fortin and they were abolitionists and he grew up with uh you know abolitionists visiting the houses and having meetings and 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 um and so he um uh, so I, I call it a family affair because all of his family were involved in that, as well as his cousin. His cousin was Charle, uh, Charlotte Forten Grimke, who wrote a book about uh, her. Diaries are very famous, and she served for a time as a nurse with the 54th for the 54th Regiment when she went to um, South to be. A, she was a teacher. Um, so. Um, I think that um, when Charles Purvis was young, they were from Philadelphia, they moved out of the city because it was becoming dangerous for them and they moved a little bit more out and um, they attended a Quaker school, but I think um, education was very important to them and and his father was a a, a proponent of education and even um, wanted an equal amount of education. He says, I'm paying taxes, I'm not going to pay my taxes anymore if my children can't get in um, education in the schools, so now I,
1: I thought this was interesting. President James Garfield, what is the connection there with purpose?
2: Yes, well, what's very interesting is is that um, in doing research for the book, uh, I looked at all kinds of sources and you know with the, with the internet, there's a wide variety of sources you can go to, and some people will will make references to where they got the information, some don't. So I came across this tidbit of information about Charles Purvis that said that he was the first black physician to to attend to a sitting president. But I I searched and searched and I said, well, I can't say that about him unless I can corroborate that story with some factual information. So after doing some research, there was... um, you know, James Garfield was shot in Union Station in Washington, D.C., and Charles Purvis had to, happened to be there and was one of the attending physicians at the time that Garfield was shot. And um, what's interesting, and the way that I could corroborate that, is that the uh, Congress did an uh, an, uh, um, an audit of all the expenses related to the assassination and the burial, um, and they mentioned all the physicians. And although... Purvis did not get paid because he only had a short thing. They thanked all the physicians, and Purvis was listed in that. So it's quite interesting. So he really was the first African-American physician to attend to as sitting president.
1: Now, you talk about um, the doctor that had the daughter to die and the two children. Tell us about that sad story.
2: Well, I think you're referring to Cortland Van Rensselaer Creed, who was yes. the first, yeah, who was the first uh, black graduate of the medical school at Yale, and um, he was a very successful doctor. Um, he he had um, he had a number of children. He had his first wife died, and he remarried a woman who was from New York. And what happened was that um, for some reason his his wife and daughters, I think two daughters were living in New York, um, while he was still in Connecticut. Um, and his wife had, they did, I think they did sewing and things like that, but they had a boarder who was an older man of some stature who seemed to have a interest in one of, um, Cortland Van Rensselaer Creed's daughter. And as it turns out, from everything that I read, um, his daughter unfortunately became pregnant. She wasn't married to this, and it, and it appears that it was the man that was living in this house. So, um, you know, at that time, that was that was not an acceptable thing. And um, so unfortunately, I think that the, the daughter... His daughter was really distraught and didn't know what to do and somehow found a way to terminate her pregnancy, but in doing so, she died. Um, It's not known exactly how that occurred, whether she had assistance, whether she took medicine, whether her father provided that to her, whether she did so. It's not very clear, but the way that it was described in some of the records that I read, it was clear that um, that's what occurred. And unfortunately, he had a, a, another son who died, and um, he really um, his life did not end up very well. He 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 was from a fairly well-to-do family in 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 New, um, in, in New Haven, and so um, but he ended really ended up uh, a pauper at the end of his life. And I think the loss of his children and his daughter. Um, really took its toll on him and it weighed heavily on him. And I think that that was um,
1: the beginning of his downfall. Yes. Chapter 12, the Iowa connection. Hmm. You talk about several men who were in Iowa, even though they had laws restricting blacks against moving there. Tell us more about that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of states had that, but, you know, I guess just like any kind of law, sometimes they abide by it, sometimes they don't. But what's interesting is, is that in in doing research for this book, um, some of the physicians had a lot of information and some had very little information. It depended upon how their life was, how much they lived their life in the public, what kinds of activities they participated in. And so... um, I have this chapter called The Iowa Connection because um, there were, let me say, there were four of these surgeons John Rapier Jr., J.D. Harris, Charles Taylor, and, um, and Alpheus Tucker, all went to the university, went to uh, Keokuk Medical College in Iowa. And so um, John Rapier had, has his own chapter. He, he, there's lots of resources and information that you you could get on John Rapier that I was able to, you know, primary sources. But these other three, there weren't a lot. So I needed to find a a way to tell their story. And the best way to tell it was through the story about them being at Iowa. Um, And it's a very interesting thing because medical education at the time for women and for black men and black people in general was very difficult. Medical schools wouldn't accept them. You know, um, even though these men graduated from Yale and Dartmouth and Worcester Medical College and Maine Medical College, Um, they were, say, one, only one or two. Um, And what's interesting is that Keokuk Medical College had four black medical students all around the same time, 1863, 1864. So that's what that chapter talks about them individually, but also talks about Iowa and, you know, what was going on there and, you know, maybe why... It, it was a place that accepted them there or that they were attracted to be there. And, um, you know, Keokuk, Iowa is right on the river there and has a lot of commerce coming in. And, you know, I, I think places that are ports maybe have more diversity or more accepting of diversity. And I think there were also some things about the medical school where they had a, um, they had a, a, a course on the military medical uh, procedures and things that allowed them to prepare to become doctors. And that may have been another reason why they were all there.
1: What is the message you want to leave the reader with once they finish your book?
2: I think the message is that, um, that these are inspirational stories that need to be told, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's been a part of history all this time, but nobody's ever written about it, um, and that it doesn't matter who you are, your story is important and needs to be told. Um, I, I want to, I, I, I often go to this last passage in my book because I think it's a good way to, to kind of summarize things And if it's okay with you, I'm just going to read this quickly. Um, The impact these black surgeons made and their contributions during the war can still be felt today. In 2019, the University of Michigan paid homage to one of these surgeons, Alpheus W. Tucker, by establishing a professorship in his honor. Dr. Theodore Washna, the first Alpheus W. Tucker, M.D. Collegiate Professor of Internal Medicine explained that naming the professorship after Tucker recognizes, quote, the university's history of racism and the faculty's complicitness in that racism. Naming a professorship in his honor seemed to me to be a way to apologize for that wrong and commit to doing better in the future. It is meant to remind us that our institution as all institutions is imperfect and that constant efforts to live up to our democratic ideals are necessary. Progress does not happen by some invisible force. It happens when people make the effort to fight for justice. And I think, you know, bringing that forward to 2019 with this professorship and recognizing, you know, the the imperfectness um, of an institution that you know, these men overcame a lot of, uh, of, of discrimination and difficulty and challenges and obstacles, but they were able to persevere and make an impact on their lives, their families' lives, and their communities' lives. And I think their stories are inspirational and can inspire other people to
1: um, do the same. Well, I've taken up enough of your time Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? The next project.
2: (laughs) Um, You know, there's so many floating in my head right now that I don't know which one I'm (laughs) going to do yet. Yeah, there's, you know, there's still so much to learn. And, and uh, somebody once asked me, you know, is this research done? And it's like, you can never be done with telling somebody's story. It's like doing genealogy. There's always a new record. With all the digitization that comes along, you can find something that was never available before. So, um, you know, I, 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 Right now I'm concentrating on this book and um, getting the word out and letting people know about the stories and um, uh, allowing people to really experience these inspirational stories um, of, 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 um,
1: of these men. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. And again, we've been talking with Jill L. Newmark, the author of Engaging the Civil War Without Concealment without compromise, the courageous lives of Black Civil War surgeons. Thank you.
2: Thank you for having me.